Well, this morning, uh, I am very excited because uh, we're beginning our uh, uh, series on end times. We're calling it, What Time Is It? A Study of End Times. And uh, we're going to be diving into some really exciting things today. And I want to go ahead and just kind of share a couple thoughts with you. First of all, I want to let you know this is probably uh, one of the most exciting uh, messages that I've ever had the opportunity to preach. And also one of the most intimidating messages that I've ever had the opportunity to preach. Uh, It's exciting because I believe uh, that we literally could be the last generation uh, that could literally be living on planet Earth as we know it right now. Uh, We could be that last generation that could usher in what the Bible calls uh, the 70th week of Daniel or the time of the tribulation, the seven years, the great tribulation, or even called the time of Jacob's trouble. And so I think we could literally be that generation that ushers in those final end time events. And so that's exciting and it could challenge, it should challenge us and it should encourage us to be about the business that God has called us to do. Uh, But it's also very intimidating because uh, there are people that have spent their entire lives, 25, 35, 40 years studying end time events. Uh, And I'm just going to go ahead and be very blunt, very clear, and very upfront with you. Uh, I am not an end time scholar. I am a shepherd. And I have not spent the last 25, 30 years studying end times events. I have spent the last 25, 30 years loving, leading, and building the local church. And that is my heart. And that is my passion. I want to equip and empower people to do what God has called them to do. Uh, And so there is an intimidation factor by the fact that there are people, and maybe many of you in this room, that have maybe spent your entire life, 15, 20, 30 years studying end time events. And I'm just going to say the more I study it, the more I realize you can study it forever, right? There is so much there. There is such a depth and such a way of wisdom and insight and so many things that God connects together uh, through the study of end times. And so I just want to kind of preference this uh, teaching with that understanding. Uh, The second thing I want to say about the intimidation factor is that there are some very clear, specific things uh, that I believe all end time scholars probably agree on. There are some specific events that are going to happen in end times that every scholar just about that studied end times events can agree on. Uh, But when it comes to the timeline and the order and the processes in which all these things are going to unfold, uh, there is a lot of discussion, uh, and there's a lot of leeway, and there's a lot of ideas and how this is going to happen, what's going to be first, second, third, fourth, and so uh, there's a little bit of an intimidation factor there uh, that, uh, that there's just so many opinions, and many times very strong opinions, about how these things are going to unfold in those end time events. So let me just be clear. Uh, my goal uh, in teaching this is not, my goal is not to get you to agree uh, with my understanding or interpretation of these scriptures. That's not my goal. Uh, my goal is really twofold. Uh, number one, I hope it's going to drive us deeper into the great commission of Jesus Christ to win souls, make disciples, destroy the works of the devil. Number two, I hope it's going to turn us into what the Bible calls Bereans. And you may say, Pastor Keith, what in the world is a Berean? Well, it's Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bible says this, it says, And the people of Berea, they were called the Bereans, were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message, and they searched the Scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So here's my heart for you. I hope, number one, uh, that no matter how much you know or don't know about end times, I hope that you will listen eagerly. I hope that you'll have an open mind, that you'll be open-minded to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. I pray that you will listen eagerly uh, and hear something. This is what I want you to hear. I don't want you to hear my words. Uh, I want you to hear my heart behind the words because there's a, there's, there's a powerful message uh, and there's a driving force behind end time prophecy uh, that really is so much bigger than what we typically think. And then last but not least, I hope that every person in here will go home and begin to search the scriptures day after day after day to find out uh, if what I'm teaching and and talking about is actually true. Uh, And if it's not, then dig into truth. Amen. Don't take my word, take God's word for it. But let me just challenge you in this because over the last few weeks, we've kind of been talking about this. I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, well, Pastor Keith, I believe this and I think this about end times. And I think that's awesome. I got a lot of beliefs and a lot of thoughts about end time events myself. Uh, But here's Here's what I want to challenge you with. If what you believe and if what you think about end time events cannot be directly traced back to a scripture in the Bible, then all you have is an opinion. So you need to make sure that what you believe about end time events is not just an opinion but it is actually rooted in Scripture. Now again, we may disagree on how we interpret that Scripture but at least you'll have a Scripture that you're basing what you believe on. And so my prayer is that like the Bereans, 
We'll be open-minded like the Bereans. We'll be eager to listen. And like the Bereans, we will study the scriptures daily to see if these things be true. Amen? So I want to encourage you to do that. So let me make one more statement here. And I wrote me down some notes because I didn't want to mess this up. I'm like, this is maybe the most important message I've ever preached in my life. Who knows? We'll see. So let me just say this. So whether you agree or whether you disagree with what I say or teach or interpret as end-time scriptures, whether you agree or disagree, is 100% irrelevant. Because your interpretation of eschatology, which is the study of last things or what we call end times, your interpretation or understanding of eschatology, the end time events, has nothing to do, that it has, it has no bearing on changing the mission of the church. Right? So whether we agree or disagree on eschatology, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Why is it irrelevant? Because our mission is very clear. We want to win souls, make disciples, destroy the works of the devil. And I believe the more clear you are on end time events, the more you want to win souls, make disciples, and destroy the works of the devil. Because when you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, when he was here, the model he gave us, he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. He was the ultimate soul winner. He made disciples, and everywhere he went, First John tells us, chapter 3, that Jesus Christ was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He was destroying sickness and disease, death and poverty, racism, and all kind of things that were rising up in the hearts and lives of people. Jesus destroyed every scheme and every plan of the enemy. Why? Because he was a soul winning disciple making and he was a devil stomper. Come on somebody. And, and so whether we agree or disagree on eschatology is irrelevant because if we agree on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again, come on somebody, and he's the only way, the truth, and the life, then guess what? We need to be about the Father's business and we need to be more committed now than ever to winning souls, making disciples, and destroying the works of the devil. All right, so before I go any further and we jump into this message, uh, I want to go ahead and do a great big, huge, huge, great big, big as I can say, as much as I can say, thank you uh, to Dr. Force Van Zandt. Dr. Force, wave everybody on the back row back there. Y'all turn around and look at him. Dr. Force and Dr. Lisa Van Zandt are uh, the directors and presidents of our Bible college here at Liberty Church. We have a Bible college called ICM here at Liberty Church. Dr. Force is also one of our elders, and he is an end-time scholar. He has spent over 25 years studying the end times, and so in light of this message, the Lord really began to stir on my heart uh, about teaching this and really diving into an end time study here with our church. So I went to Dr. Forrest and so a huge, huge thank you to him because he actually wrote a 35 page syllabus on end time events. And this 35 page syllabus is actually going to be the backdrop of what I'm going to be teaching you over the next few weeks. He also wrote, just for my personal help, he wrote an overview of the book of Revelations and broke it down into a timeline event. And that is also going to be available to you. So we want to make this syllabus uh, on end times and the syllabus on the timeline of Revelations available to you. Uh, and it's really simple. All you've got to do is immediately after church today, stop by the information center. Uh, Dr. Forrest and Lisa are going to be out there. Uh, and you can sign up, give them your name and your email address. We're going to email you a PDF copy of this syllabus. Let me just encourage everybody in here ought to get it. Everybody in here ought to read it. And you ought to familiarize yourself. Because what he does in this 35-page syllabus is he gives details and dates and all kind of things, numbers and numerology, that I do not have time on Sunday morning in a 35 45 minute window to communicate to you guys okay so there is so much here that I'm not going to be able to touch on and I want to encourage you to get this and read it and again like the Bereans let's study the scripture and see if these things be true so if I say anything that you don't agree with through this study just go talk to Dr. Force if I say anything you agree with then just go and talk with Dr. Force so it'll all be wonderful okay so Dr. Force thank you so much I greatly appreciate it let's give him a great big round of applause uh, I'm just telling you It is so good to be a part of the body of Christ when one person doesn't have to know and do everything. Isn't it good that we are the body and that there are some scholars and some students and some teachers that can help us do what we're called to do? And so I'm really overjoyed and honored, uh, Dr. Forrest, to be taking what you've written and putting it together to present it to the body. So let's start. Where do we start? I, I want to start with something really simple today, kind of before we dive into this thing. I want to start with the purpose of prophecy. It's the first point on your outline, if you got an outline when you came in today. Uh, the purpose of prophecy, and I think this is significant. And why this is significant, because I just asked the question. I said, God, why in the world, why in the world would you waste your time telling us what you're going to do thousands of years before you do it? Why in the world, God, would you even waste your time? Because I don't know if you guys have figured it out, but as human beings, we have this amazing ability to mess things up. 
I mean, like, we're just really good at messing stuff up. And so I said, God, why in the world would you even take the time to affirm and confirm to us things that you're going to do thousands of years before you do it? Because it's your plan, God, and you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So why in the world even tell us why you're doing what you're going to do? And very simple, here's what I want you to see. The purpose of prophecy is really clear. The purpose of prophecy is to authenticate the Word of God so that, I want you to hear this, so that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. See, the purpose of all prophecy in Scripture is ultimately to authenticate the Word of God so that you and I come to a place of faith that we believe that Jesus is who He says He is. That He is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the coming one. Every Old Testament prophecy that was given was all given about Him, the one that's going to save and redeem the world. He is the Savior of the world. And everything that we're going to talk about through this study is intended to drive us to a place of faith in Jesus Christ, to drive us to a place of understanding Understanding the authenticity of the Word of God, I can trust the Bible, but even more than that, I can take the authenticity of the Bible and it proves that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. And I believe it is impossible. I believe it is genuinely impossible. If you have a sincere, honest heart, I believe it's impossible for you to study end time events. And not come to the conclusion that God's word is true and that Jesus is who he says he is. If you with a sincere heart go to scripture looking for truth, I believe without a shadow of a doubt you'll find the truth that God's word is true. And most importantly that Jesus is who he says he is. The son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. In John chapter 14, Jesus kind of gives us a little illustration of this. He's speaking to his disciples. He says, remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. And if you really love me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. Look at verse 29. He said, but I have told you these things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you will what? I've told you these things before they happen, so when they do happen, you will believe. The purpose of prophecy is that we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. God's word is true. And the authenticity of scripture brings to evidence the realization that if God's word is true, then Jesus is who God says he is. And he is the only hope for our world. Amen? All right, so I want to take today, and I really kind of want to answer the question I think probably most of us are asking, and that is, Pastor Keith, where are we right now? Where are we right now in this timeline of end time events? And today we're going to answer that question. And when you leave here today, you're going to have clarity. You're going to know right where we are in the midst of end time events, according to Scripture, okay? So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 19. And the Bible says this, Daniel is praying. And Daniel says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And now while I was speaking, Daniel says, praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. For at the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, in the next four verses, verse 24, 25, 26, and 27, God is going to give to Daniel the cliff note version of end times. In four verses, we're going to get a snapshot of what is going to unfold in the end time events that are going to change our world. Four little bitty verses. God gives Daniel this little snapshot, the cliff note version of here's what's going to happen. Okay? So let's look at this together. Verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people. I'm going to stop right there because those 70 weeks are really 70 weeks of years. And again, I don't have time to go into all that. But if you'll get the syllabus, Dr. Forrest does an amazing job of showing how that God, let me just say this, God is the greatest scientist and the greatest mathematician to ever walk the earth. He is a mathematical genius. 
okay? And you're going to see that those 70 weeks of years, which ends up being 490 years, you're going to see that God uses that consistently through the history of the nation of Israel. And Dr. Forrest does a beautiful job laying all that out. I don't have time to do it. You can all read, so get the syllabus. Amen? All right, so he says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, God declares that there are six things he identifies there that he's going to do in the nation of Israel for the Jewish people in a 70-week time frame, 70 weeks of years, which is 490 years. So God says, during these 490 years, I am going to do six specific things. And the last thing that he says he's going to do is he is going to anoint the most holy, which is Jesus. He's going to ultimately anoint Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords in Israel as he takes the throne of his father David and establishes his eternal kingdom. So, he declares there's 70 weeks of weeks, 490 years, and all this stuff is going to happen. And the last thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to be anointed and set in as the King of Kings, earthly reigning and ruling over all. Okay? Y'all still with me? Okay. Verse 25. He says, know therefore and understand. So he's about to do something crazy. He's about to create a timeline. He's about to set a starting point and a defining mark for these end time events that he just prophesied to Daniel were going to happen. So look what he says. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So from the time that the command is given to restore and build Jerusalem, look what he says. Until Messiah the Prince... Messiah the Prince is Jesus being revealed as the Prince or the King of Israel. Until that time, he says, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So for all my mathematicians, seven plus 62 is? I got one mathematician in the whole house. Seven plus 62 is? Three of you. All right, 69 weeks, right? So there's going to be 69 weeks from the time the command goes to the time that Jesus presents himself, the Messiah presents himself as prince, there are going to be seven weeks plus 62 weeks, and the strength shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. Now look at verse 26. And after 62 weeks, so there were seven weeks, and then the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but not for himself. So the crucifixion is what he's talking about. And the people of the prince who is to come. He just right now just did something right there. The people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. So he's just identified the Antichrist and the people of the Antichrist. Look what he says. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war there shall be desolations that are determined. And then he says in verse 27, and he shall confirm. He again here is the Antichrist. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Seven years, a week of years. Seven years. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offerings. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now that sounds just like Greek, don't it? But it's actually Hebrew and a lot worse than that. So we're going to read NLT translation. Let me reread the verse 27. He says, And the ruler, the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the, people of, with the people for a period of one set of seven, seven years. And after half this time, three and a half years into it, he will put an end to the sacrifice and the offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious option. He's going to set himself up as God. That causes desecration. Jesus in Matthew 24 calls it the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. So this is what he's talking about. He says, until the fate, of the, till the fate decreed for this defiler, again the Antichrist, is finally poured out on him. Alright, so we're going we're gonna to take a little journey today. I want you to look at this next point. Because this next point is, is huge. Let me, let me just say this to you. This has been the greatest revelation that I have gotten out of this end time study. I've been studying the Bible from cover to cover for 28 years. 
almost every year I read through the Bible more than once. I have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours studying Scripture. This, hands down, has been the greatest revelation I've got out of this study on end times. And what has been amazing is that from this one revelation, from this one revelation, it has begun to illuminate the Scripture. I told Kelly last week, I said, my Bible study has come more alive now than I think it's ever been in my entire life. I am seeing things in Scripture that I never saw before because I didn't fully grasp this. So I want you to see this because this is huge. So look what we're talking about. End-time prophecy revolves around three things. End-time prophecy revolves around three things. It revolves around God's land, which is Israel, God's people, who are the Jews, and God's holy city, which is Jerusalem. And the church, that's me and you, is not mentioned in this Scripture. We're not in Daniel 9. As a matter of fact, when you read most end-time prophecy, Daniel, Zika, Revelations, you're going to find out the church is kind of missing in a lot of the story that is unfolding. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to talk about that in the next couple weeks. But I want you to see something. The church is not mentioned in this scripture because end-time events revolve around God finishing what he started with Israel. God finishing what he started with Israel. In Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. Y'all remember Abraham? God made a covenant with Abraham. And God's covenant with Abraham included three things. It included the land, physical property. It included the people, the Jews. And it included a city called Jerusalem. And when you read your Bible, go home and read your Bible. When you read the Bible in the Old Testament, every, just about every promise that he gives, other than prophecies concerning Christ, but even those prophecies are going to bring all this together. Every promise that God gives the children of Israel revolves around three things. It revolves around the land, it revolves around the people, and it revolves around the city. Why? Because God promised them an earthly inheritance. And everything that God promised them that he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15. Let me tell you some good news. This ought to encourage you. God keeps his promises. God does exactly what he says he's going to do, exactly how he says he's going to do it. And so if you don't grab this, if you don't understand, because what happens is we misinterpret end-time prophecy because we try to interject things in the interpretation of those scriptures that are not included. When God spoke to Daniel, he spoke to Daniel specifically about the people, the land, and the city. He spoke about Jerusalem, he spoke about the Jews, and he spoke about the land, Israel. And all end-time prophecy revolves around those Three things. And when you begin to see that, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. Your mind is going to be blowed. I read scriptures this past week that I've read my entire life. And all of a sudden, I'm like, this is the most amazing thing I have ever seen in my life. And I'm a pastor. I thought I knew the Bible. It's so good, guys. So you've got to grab hold of this. So look at this next point. So God's going to finish what he started. In the next point, Gabriel revealed to Daniel that there are 70 weeks of years determined for Israel, for the Jews, and for Jerusalem. 69 weeks, guys, listen to this, 69 weeks, 483 years have already been accomplished and fulfilled. 69 of those 70 weeks have already been fulfilled. And I'm going to show it to you because we just read it in Daniel. He told us how to mark the time of when it would start and how to measure the time of when we would get to the end of the 69th week. And so look at this. March 14, 445 B.C. to April the 6th, 32 A.D., which is 173,880 days. I just like saying that one. I've loved that number. I've just grabbed hold of it. 173,880 days, exactly 69 weeks of years. Now, the Jewish calendar is not 365 days. It's 360 days, so you've got to do the math. Dr. Forrest, get the syllabus, get the syllabus, get the syllabus, get the syllabus. He explains all that in here, okay? It's all in here. He takes a lot of time that I do not have. I'm already out of time. So, I mean, he takes a lot of time that you need to go home and read this, and he's going to explain all of that. He gives you dates, people, all that good stuff that ties it all together. So I want you to just to see something. So from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the day that Jesus presents himself as king riding into Jerusalem, I want you to see exactly 173,880 days. From the time it happened, the command was given... To the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphant entry. We call it Palm Sunday. Y'all remember that, right? They're taking the palm branches and they're worshiping him. From that time, it is literally 69 weeks of years. It is literally 173,880 days to the day. To the day. 
that God said it would happen. So I want you to see this. Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey and a colt and the foal of a donkey. He's coming on a donkey. The Jews missed him. I want you to hear this. The Jews missed Jesus. Because they were looking for what they wanted instead of what God said was going to come. See, the king don't come on a donkey. The king comes on a horse. And how many know one day the king of kings coming on a horse? And he's going to establish the throne of David, and he's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron, the Bible says, for a thousand years. And some awesome stuff that we're going to talk about is going to happen. Okay? This is a word of warning for us. I want you to hear this. The Jews did not reject God. The Jews did not reject the law of God. The Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah sent by God. And part of the reason they missed it is because they do what we do. They read their scriptures, interpreting them by what they wanted from God instead of by what God said he was actually going to do. It's so easy, guys. It's so easy to make it say what we want it to say when it ain't actually what he says. God over and over in the Old Testament told them what was going to happen. But they read what they wanted to read, they saw what they wanted to see, they heard what they wanted to hear, and they missed it. And we are guilty, if we're not careful, guys, of doing the same thing. Word of warning. That's all free today. Amen? John chapter 12. The Bible says the next day, news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem slept, swept through the city and a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Look at verse 16. And his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered his glory, they remembered what had happened and they realized that these things were written about him. 173,880 days to the day. When God said, they said, come rebuild Jerusalem to the time that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they take palm branches and they acknowledge him for the first time. Hail the king of the Jews. God finishes and fulfills everything that he starts. Amen? Now I want you to look at this next point because this is, this is important. Salvation comes from the Jews. Salvation ends with the Jews. And by God's grace, he includes the whole world. Salvation comes from the Jews and salvation will end with the Jews. And by God's grace, he includes all of us, all of the entire world in the grace of God. Look with me in John 4, 22. Jesus said, speaking to the woman at the well, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Think about it. Everything, everything that we have as Christians is 100% rooted in Jewish culture. It's 100% rooted in the Jewish faith. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything, every aspect of genuine Christianity finds its roots in Jewish history. If you remove the Jews from history, you remove the church. There is no church without the Jews. He is of the lineage of David, right? He is of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. So salvation begins with the Jews. Genesis 15, God started something. And guess what? God's going to finish what he started. The entire last week, that last week, which is the last seven years, that 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven years of tribulation, the great tribulation, that last week is all about God finishing what he started with the nation of Israel. God started it with Abraham. God's going to finish it in the great tribulation. And right smack dab in the middle, like an Oreo, here's the church. Woo, we get to be the cream in the middle. The grace of God is extended to now all the world so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
Salvation comes from and ends with the Jews. And right in the middle, God extends his grace to all of us. Look with me in Romans 11. Let me encourage you, you ought to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 because Paul does an amazing job of distinguishing between the Jews, God's people, and the church, God's bride. We are the body of Christ and we are the bride of Christ and the Jews are the people of God. And he does a beautiful job of distinguishing the difference because there is this teaching out there called replacement theology where the church replaces the Jews, replaces Israel. That is 100% absolutely not true. And the reason that theology comes is because we don't understand what we talked about, that all end-time prophecy revolves around the land, the people, and the city. And if you don't understand that, you're going to try to fit the church, the Jewish nations, and the nations of the world into an end-time prophecy that does not include us because it's not about us. God began a work. God's going to finish the work. And right here in the middle is me and you guys. It's called the grace of God that has been extended to all the world. So look what Paul says. This is so good. Romans 11, I hope you are with me. Everybody good? He says, verse 11, Romans 11, 11, Did God's people, the Jews, stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, look at this, so that God, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Look at verse 12. Now if the Gentiles, that's me and you guys, were enriched... Because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation. And again, they didn't reject God. They didn't reject the law of God. They just rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Look what he says. He says, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. Now think about what he just said right here. This is huge. So Paul says this, he says, guys, I want you to understand, because he's speaking to Gentiles here, he says, I want you to understand, and he goes on and he says, I don't want you to become proud and arrogant. I don't want you to get all puffed up because, you know, the Jews rejected him, and now we're the Gentiles, we've accepted Christ, and we're, whoo, you know, we're all that in a bag of chips. He said, don't go there. Don't, don't, don't be deceived, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant, don't, don't even go there. He said, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the Jews. There is no salvation apart from the Jews. He says, but this is what I want you to see. He said, if, if, the, if the Jewish people rejected Christ and through their rejection of him, salvation came to the world. Think, look what he says. Look at that little phrase there. Think how much greater, think how much greater a blessing the world will share through their acceptance. See, they rejected Christ, and through their rejection, we were able to accept Christ, and grace was extended to the world. And one day, during that tribulation period, which is all about the city, the people, and the land, God is going to open the eyes of the Jews. And the Bible says they're going to see him whom they pierced. And they're going to repent of their sins, and they're going to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And they're going to accept him. That's what that seven years of tribulation is all about. It's not about me and you. It's about the Jewish nation having their eyes open to accept Jesus as Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And this is what Paul says. Guys, when they rejected him, you got brought in and you experienced this amazing grace. When they accept him, he said, let me tell you something. He said, you thought what you got now is good. There's going to be a greater blessing that the whole world is going to experience. Why? Because when they accept Christ, at the end of their acceptance, we're going to usher in. That, their acceptance is going to usher in what is going to ultimately be a new heaven and a new earth where Christ is going to reign. There'll be no sun, no moon, or no stars because Christ will be the light of all the world. And we will live in a place where there is no sickness and there is no death and there is no dying and there is no parting because the curse has been removed and the blessing of God has been fulfilled and total complete redemption has been accomplished. That's what's going to happen when they accept him. A greater blessing it's going to come. So then he goes on. He says, verse 13, I say all this, especially you Gentiles, because God appointed me as an apostle to Gentiles. I stress this, for I want to somehow make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. Paul says, hey, I want the Gentile, the Jews to look at what the Gentiles have. I want them to get jealous and want what you got. And some have, right? We have Messianic Jews that have accepted Christ. But how many of you understand that for the most part, the Jewish nation has still not acknowledged Jesus as Messiah? 
There are a handful that have been saved. And Paul said, hey, I want to make these folks so jealous, they want what you got, and they can't believe. I'm just going to be honest with you. The Jews could not believe that we would get to walk in the grace of God and the blessing of God and the intimacy of God and have the inheritance of God that they have because we were, we were considered, I mean, we were considered outsiders. But now we get it, amen? Because of the grace of God that's been poured out on us. So he goes on and says, Verse 15, for since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will even be more wonderful. He says the same thing. It's going to be greater, better. It will be life for those who are dead. So look at that next one. I want you to see this. So where are we? Where are we now? I want you to see this. Where are we now? We are living now in what is called the gap. The gap. It's the gap between verse 26 and the gap between verse 27. It's the gap between week 69 that's already been fulfilled and week 70 that's about to begin. So if you're reading Daniel chapter 9 and you finish verse 26 and you take a breath, that's where you're living right now. We're living in the breath between verse 26 and the breath between verse 27. And this is what the Bible goes on to call, look at this, we call it the time of the Gentiles, that's what the Bible calls it. Uh, theologians call it the church age or the time of Israel's blindness. Look at Daniel 9 again, verse 26. It says, and after the 62 weeks, so there were 70 weeks, seven weeks, then 62, Messiah shall be cut off. He was crucified, but not for himself. Because what? He died for the sins of who? The world, right? Not for his own sins. And then look what it says. And the people of the prince who is to come shall come, and they will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened 70 A.D. 70 A.D., the Jewish temple, Jerusalem, was laid waste. The temple was destroyed. Do you remember Jesus when the disciples were, they were walking through the temple and they said, look at the temple, it's amazing. Jesus said, every stone is going to be torn down. And it was. Just, just not even 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple and the city were destroyed and torn down. Now, this is huge. We're going to talk about this a little more over the next few weeks. For almost 2,000 years now, guys, the Jewish people have not offered sacrifices to God. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you find out that the Bible is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But there's a, there's a catch. Because if you're a Jew, there's only one place you can offer sacrifice, and that's in the temple. And if you look in the Middle East right now, on the temple mound is not the temple dedicated to the Jews. And they have not had a temple for over 2,000 years. I believe it was 90 A.D., 20 years later, the council of the Jews, the head of the Jews, they met together and they had to redefine how they would be made right with God because they could not offer sacrifices to the Lord because you just can't go out and build an altar anywhere and offer sacrifices. No, there's one place set apart and dedicated and holy and that's on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So for 2,000 years, they have not offered sacrifices. But that's going to come again. Let's look at the rest of the scripture. So 70 AD, that all happened. And then it says, verse 27, And then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, for seven years. He's going to confirm a covenant. He's going to establish a covenant. Literally, it means he's going to enforce a covenant. I don't know if you guys are watching the news. <laughs> But in the last 60 days, there's been two covenants signed with Israel from Arab nations that looked impossible to happen six months ago. God is ushering us toward this season. And we are closer now, Paul said, than we've ever been. Because we're living in this gap. So look, look at this. So verse 26 ends with the temple being destroyed. Verse 27 opens with the Antichrist stepping into power. And so verse 26 ends at the 69 weeks. Verse 27 opens the 70th week of Daniel, which is the Great Tribulation. And so we're living in that gap. It's called the time of the Gentiles. I want you to look with me in Romans 11 again. I want to read King James verse 25, and then we're going to flip back over to NLT. Look what he says. He says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. What's the mystery he's talking about? The mystery is the church. The Jews were clueless that the church were ever going to be saved, that the Gentiles were ever going to be grafted in. And in the New Testament, Paul talks about the mystery that was hidden from the foundations of the world, the mystery that were hidden from the apostles and the prophets, but have now been revealed to us. What's the mystery? We're the mystery, guys. 
The church, even though in Genesis 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham, God told Abraham he was going to save the whole world. Do you remember what he said? He said, and through you, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing, and all nations will be blessed through you. God was declaring to Abraham what he was going to do. He just didn't see it. And we're the mystery. So look what he goes on and says. He says, at least you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Let me read it in NLT. He says, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. They're blind. And they were. The Bible says their blindness was in part so that God could bring salvation to the world. And God has now extended grace. So the Jews were blinded. They missed it. They shouldn't have missed it, but they missed it. John, John chapter 1 says he came to his own and his own received him not. But to many as believe in him and receive him as Lord, they'll be the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. And so they were blinded for our sake. So that me and you could be saved. Look what it goes on to say. Verse NLT again. He says, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. So all Israel will be saved, as the scripture says, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from unrighteousness. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. You remember what he said in Daniel? He named six things. Four of those things dealt with removing sin and bringing in righteousness. God said, I'm going to finish what I started, guys. I told you I'm going to bring the end of sin. I'm going to bring an end to transgression. I'm going to bring an everlasting righteousness. And I'm going to seal you up and set you apart for the work that I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to finish this thing. I'm going to finish. I'm going to take away your sins. Verse 28. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, but this, is, this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people. Look at this. They are still the people God loves because he chose their ancestor, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call will never be withdrawn. And once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the, God of Israel, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. And now they are rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. Look at verse 32. God is so smart. He says, for God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that he can have mercy on everyone. The Bible says the purpose of the law is not to make us right. The purpose of the law is to declare all men guilty. God didn't give Moses the law so everybody could be made righteous. God gave Moses the law so we could all know we were sinners and we needed a Savior, and we'd ultimately look up and say, God, you're the only one. And so God has declared all men in disobedience so, listen to this, so he can have mercy on all. For God so loved the world, red and yellow, black and white, and they are precious in his sight, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 33, Paul says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible it is for us to understand and discern his ways. Modern translation, God's really smart. Now look at this next point. Last point here, but we're going to hang out here for just a minute. Jesus said, <clears throat> I want you to see this. We're going to read Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Jesus gives a two-chapter declaration of end-time events. But Jesus said he was going to come like a thief in the night. He says, so be ready. That's his word. So be ready. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. So be ready. Now, we know, I want you to hear this. We know what the last seven years on earth are going to look like. We know what the seven years of tribulation are going to look like. It is very clear in the Bible. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want you to see this. But what we don't know, this is what we don't know. We don't know when the last Gentile is going to be saved. Because when the time of the Gentiles, as the Bible calls it, comes to an end, everything is going to change in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. Everything's going to change in a moment when the last Gentile comes to Christ. Now let's listen to Jesus, Matthew 24. Jesus said, verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, and two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left. And two women will be grinding in the mill and one will be taken and the other will be left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour that the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So, so this is what I want you to see. We say all the time, well, Jesus is coming. Nobody knows the hour or the time of the day. You're right, he's coming. And nobody knows the hour and time of the day. But what we do know, what we do know is what the last seven years on earth are going to look like. When the Antichrist steps into power and he signs a treaty and he becomes a world leader, ruling over and enforcing a treaty with Israel and other nations, you can know, set your watch, seven years to the day. When three and a half years of that ends and the, and the temple has now been rebuilt and now the Jews are offering sacrifices in the temple, when he cuts off those sacrifices and sets up his image at, to be worshipped as God in the temple, you can mark your clock to the day, three and a half years, Jesus is coming back. When the seven seals start popping and the seven trumps start sounding and the seven vials start being poured out on the earth, I'm just going to tell you, if you can read, you're going to have a clue. Jesus is coming now. Okay? It ain't going to be clueless. It ain't going to be a thief in the night. Because God has so marked those last seven years that we can see it know it and set our watches by so if he's not talking about him coming back at the end of that seven years as king of kings and lord of lords to set up his earthly throne then what's he talking about when he says i'm coming like a thief in the night what he's talking about is the gap see we're living in the gap we know what those last seven years are going to look like but you know what we don't know we don't know when the time of the gentiles is fulfilled we don't know when the last gentile is going to get saved because I'm just telling you right now, that's the only thing holding back the rapture of the church. That's the only thing holding back us from being caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And there to be with Him forever is the last Gentile. I was talking with Pastor Ian last week. I said, think about it. I said, we could, we could lead the last person to Christ and usher in the end of time as we know it. And that's the thief part. That's what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about you're not going to know what those last seven years look like. If you can mark time, you're going to know when those things begin to happen. These are world events that are going to mark eternity and time. Every person on planet earth will be able to know these things are happening. And it's going to lead up and you can set your watch seven years from that moment, three and a half years from that moment. God's going to come back and he's going to do what he said he would do. So how is he going to come as a thief in the night? He's talking about right now this gap. Between the 69th week and the 70th week of Daniel, where now this is the time of the Gentiles, salvation has been extended to all the world, and he's going to finish what he started with the Jews because he began it in Genesis 15. He's going to end it during that 70th week of Daniel, and right here in the middle for 2,000 years, God who is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance has extended his grace and his mercy to me and you. And we're right there, guys. Treaties are being signed in Israel. And we're moving closer and closer to that 70th week. And it could be any moment or any hour or any time. And who knows who that last Gentile is? I'd like to lead them to the Lord. Now let me just say this to you today. If that thought makes you nervous that Jesus could come any moment now, if that thought makes you nervous not nervous because you have people that aren't right with the Lord. I have family and friends that aren't right with the Lord, and, and that, that burdens my heart. That's why we need to be about the Father's business. But it don't make me nervous for me. It excites me to think. In a moment, a twinkle of an eye, this thing could all be over. In a moment, a twinkle of an eye, I can meet the Lord in there. But if that makes you nervous because in your heart of hearts you know you're not ready, here's the good news. Today's the day of salvation. You might be the last one. I don't know. You might pray the sinner's prayer. You might step out in faith today and accept Christ. And that may be the last one. I'm not sure. I, I, I really, I'm just going to be honest with you. I hope it's not because i got people I love. But it could be. There's nothing holding me back until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And if that's you today and you're sitting there and you're afraid, you're frightened and you're nervous about that thought that Jesus could come any moment. And if I'm not ready, two are going to be there in the field and one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Two are going to be grinding, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. 
I want you just to bow your head today. If you're watching online, I want you right now just to close your eyes for just a minute. I want you to get, a, get your heart alone with God. I want to ask you a question today. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Because we're in that gap, and guys, we're at the end of it. I believe that 70th week is coming. I believe that 70th week is coming. It, it is on the precedence of our generation. And the only thing missing for this thing to happen is that the last Gentile would be saved. And if you're here today, you say, Pastor Keith, that frightens me. That scares me. I don't know if I'm ready. Well, I want to just ask you to do something today. Let's get ready. I want to ask you a simple question. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah? Do you believe He's the one that God promised would save the world? If you're here today, you say, yes, I believe that. Are you willing to commit your life to Him and make Him the Lord of your life? Lordship means ownership. I mean, you're going to give the reins of your life to Him and say, God, I'm no longer my own. I'm yours. I want, to, I want you to take my life and use it as you see fit. I'm yours. Because if you believe that he is who he says he is and you're willing to make Jesus the Lord of your life, then the Bible says you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. And if you want to be saved today, if you're watching online or if you're in person, if you're here today in person, I want you just to raise your hand. Just a simple act of faith. Right now, just go ahead and raise your hand. I, I, I'm not ready, but I want to be ready today. I want to be ready. Our ushers are going to come. They're going to put a little packet in your hand. You can leave your hand up for just another moment, but just keep your hand lifted. They're going to lay a packet in your, in your lap. But I'm not ready, but I want to be ready today. I want, I want to be ready to meet the Lord. Raise your hand high, okay? I want to make sure we, we don't miss anyone here today. Raise your hand high. I want to be ready to meet the Lord. If you're watching online, if you're on an online campus, there's a little hand you can say, hey, I want to raise it. If you're watching on social media, just type in, I want to accept Christ. I'm raising my hand. Whatever you want to put right now, we're about to pray. Today's the day of salvation. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to miss out. You don't have to be left behind. There is hope in Christ today. So let's just pray this prayer together. Let's say it out loud. Everybody with me, let's say it out loud together. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is who He says He is. My Savior, my Lord, my God, He is the Messiah the promised one. I confess that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life and I receive your life and the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, my Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.